Um, I'm Erin Wheeler, married to Brad. We've been married uh, 20 years in June. So I got a big one coming up. It's been a lot of fun, been a wild ride. Roller coaster, kind of how I put it. That would probably be a good app description. Um, we have four children. They range from 15 down to 10, so 15, 14, uh, 12, and 10. And um, they're, they're great. We have three girls and a little boy. How we met. How we met. Uh, our story's a little unusual. We met in junior high. We bumped into each other in the hallway, and that's kind of how it started. That's not really the first I wasn't going to give that story. I'll, I'll save that one for another fun time. Yeah. <laughs> we met before that, but he doesn't remember, so I love to dangle it. I wasn't it. the most mature. No, he was not. But then again, he was 12. So. <laughs> I've got one. Yeah, use the mic. That way it's helpful for the audio, for the recording. All right. Hey, guys. Kevin McCollum. Uh, it's weird to go stag to a marriage panel. That's what I was telling these guys. Um, so my wife is actually not here. She's in Louisville, Kentucky, because uh, our oldest daughter is 21, is having a baby, and uh, you will not keep my wife anywhere away from that. So she's there. Um, so you guys can pray for her. Uh, we've been married 25 years this past January, so a big celebration for us just happened. Exciting. Hard to believe. It gets there fast. Um, and um, we have 11 children. Uh, I will not uh, give you their ages because I can't remember them most of the time. But it's about every two and a half years or so. You can kind of do the math. Um, our oldest is, like I said, is 21. And then our youngest is two. So six girls, five boys, one adoption. Um, let's see. We met actually at uh, right here at the University of Arkansas. So... Um, my wife was a student elsewhere at Washita, and we were on a leadership kind of thing together. And the guy said, get in groups of eight or whatever, and we got in the same circle. And she transferred up here, and so that's when we kind of got to know each other. It was. It was amazing. Uh, I made the announcement pretty quickly, like, this is the girl that I'm interested in, and everybody back off. And so I lost a few guy friends over that, but I got a wife, so that worked. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway all right my, my name is john muller i've uh, been here at ubc for at least 16 yeah 16 years done music and right now i'm i'm i do counseling i do um, pastoral care oversee our budget and a whole bunch of other things um i've been married for it'll be 27 in june so i'm the senior guy here so we, uh, we have, we have uh, three children, and I have a son that graduated from the U of A uh, last year. He's uh, up in New York working at a chemical company. We'll be coming back this summer and starting med school in the, in the fall. I have, have a, another son who's a junior at Baylor, and then I have a, a daughter who's a seventh grader in Farmington. Let's see, I met my wife. Um, she was running late one day. No. No, we do have different time. We, we look at time differently, and uh, that's one of the differences and sweetnesses of our marriage. Uh, <laughs> uh, we met at seminary at, in Fort Worth. I, we were a, a year apart in school. She stayed out a year. Hey, da, 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 da. <laughs> There's my lovely wife right there making an entrance. <laughs> <laughs> Are you being serious? No. Oh, no. I was like, all right. You had me. 
Uh, we met in we met at seminary. She uh, she laid out a year and worked at the Georgia Baptist Children's Home. I was in Texas. She was in Georgia. This is how God works things. And then we ended up at seminary at the same time. We were across a volleyball net, saw each other, and then our first class together. She sat right in front of me, and it was like God. God just did it. Boom. Yep. <laughs> there it is. All right. So, hey, uh, last week, Cole uh, did a talk on dating. Last year, I did the same thing. You can find all those audios online at ubccollege.com um, if you're interested. As well, little little thing with book giveaways here. Um, two books that I think are particularly helpful when talking about marriage is, one, just looking at a biblical theology of marriage. Biblical theology is just tracing the theme of marriage throughout the scriptures. This is called Marriage in the Mystery of the Gospel. It's by Ray Ortland. Who would be? It's really short. Look at that. You can crank through that baby over spring break. All right. The other book um, is called Married for God by Christopher Ash. So really, really helpful book um, when thinking about marriage and how a, marriage, a good marriage actually begins with God, not necessarily our felt needs or like what Tripp talked about yesterday, looking at marriage and, and getting married because of attraction, uh, but rally, really actually marriage beginning with God. Super helpful book by Christopher Ash. All right. I don't know what that says about the guys, but you guys are ready to get married. Yeah. Um, okay, so before we dive in, just a little, uh, little word right here. Short and succinct if you can, right, because we can all tend to be long-winded. Uh, as they know, clearly, those 25-minute talks can go to 35. As we know with Brad, those 40-minute sermons can go to 50. And, uh, yeah, so we can all tend to be long-winded, so just a, just a reminder, short, succinct, ladies, chime in, would love your, your, uh, your input in this. Okay, so what is biblical marriage and what is its purpose, and how do we often misunderstand marriage? Wheelers, want to start with you all. What is biblical marriage and what is its purpose, and how do we often misunderstand marriage? So have they? So these are foundational questions. So we're starting with two primary foundational questions. All right. So we're starting with two. We're starting with foundational questions right here, uh, with just biblical marriage. Exactly. What is it? And then we'll get into the practical questions after these two foundational questions. So have they received any teaching on marriage yet? None. So this is their first introduction to well, the... Well, some were here last year, and so they got to hear... Okay, but I'm saying in this session... This is it. This is it. This okay, is it. all right. They didn't go to the marriage conference this weekend. Right, okay. Right. Okay, so we're doing a Q&A on marriage. Q&A on marriage okay. when they haven't been taught about marriage yet. All right. You and I will chat about that later. But... Okay. Exactly. <laughs> and you didn't say that to me last year, no, so... I did, all right. I, did. I guess you were just gracious and merciful. Oh. Well, we'll give them a year to... This is the advantage of themselves. being the supervisor. Um... <laughs> No, uh, so uh, marriage, just quick definition. Marriage, it's a covenant commitment between one man and one woman, lifelong monogamous relationship. So covenant commitment, it's something, promise you make before God, before others. It is between, biblically, between a man and a woman. So not two men, not two women, not two women and a man. So not polyamorous relationships. See that in the garden. Um, and then it is uh, to be lifelong, uh, lived out together. So basic biblical definition. Purpose, though. Well, how do we often misunderstand it? Yeah, so what's, the, what's its purpose, and then how do we often misunderstand marriage? So purpose, and then how do we misunderstand, how can we misunderstand marriage? Sure. 
Well, you kind of said it when you were talking about the book, even, uh, Mary yeah. for God. I, I think one of the number one problems that we face is that uh, we think of marriage as completion, wholeness, joyfulness, all about me. There's a very narcissistic view, I think, that we hold of marriage in the culture today, particularly in the Christian culture, because marriage is kind of, in some sense, being blown up by the culture itself around us. It's not, if you want, you can get married, but why bother? It's just a, a secular institution, blah, 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 but not recognizing that it's actually made, created by God himself, as Brad was saying, it started in the garden. Um, but it really isn't meant to make us whole or complete or even happy for that, just holy. I think that's what we need to think about. Yeah. The conversation my wife and I often have, and this came crashing home to us our first year in marriage. So we brought all of sort of the world's assumptions about how marriage would complete and satisfy and fulfill. And what you realize is you end up demanding from your spouse what God never expects them to deliver, and frankly, what they can't deliver. And the risk is we turn our spouses into messiahs and gods and look to them to fulfill what only God can fulfill. And regardless of whether or not you're aware of that, God will disabuse you of that notion pretty quickly into marriage because you're two sinners and it gets rough quick. Doesn't mean it's not great. Marriage is glorious. It's just not glorious in the ways we anticipate. It's glorious in how that spouse becomes an instrument of grace to sanctify us as opposed to simply like satisfy our needs. Good. That's helpful. All right. So thinking about roles in marriage, what's the meaning of headship and submission in the Bible and how can that be misunderstood? So understanding of headship, submission in the Bible and how that can be misunderstood. Yeah, I think, I think our culture really messes that up really bad. We see submission and we think it's almost this subservient kind of under, under role. Our wife kind of does what we, we tell them to do, or they stay in the home and they have all these things that they have to do. And the, and the husband's to, you know, kind of sit around and the wife just serve him. But the scripture calls us to serve one another, right? And then, and then you go to Ephesians where those roles are particularly spoken about, you know, that the husband is to be the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. So then you're like, all right, we're, so we're supposed to be a representative of Christ to our spouse. What does that mean? Well, what, how did he lead the church? What did he do? Well, he served. He died. He gave himself up. He, be, he humbled himself and became, he became nothing. So that's, that's our role as a, a head is to, is to come under and to, to pour Christ into her, to, to lead her to Christ. It's to, to serve and, and mutually sub, submit. And then for particularly that word submit, that, that Greek word means to, to, to come under and to support. If sometimes I'll describe it as um, like the, these bridges that are being built out here on 40, you saw all those bridges being, what's the first thing they did? They, they got the ground ready and they started making these huge columns concrete and I mean just massive and then they laid on top of them these the the bridge so that that bridge can function but it doesn't function without the support the submission of of those of those columns and that's what I mean I, I've seen that in my marriage my wife coming under me helping me to to live out my role as as a head and you also think of Christ as a head guys this is if he's prophet priest and king you know, I, I, want, I need to be that to my wife, a prophet, the, the person who guards against sin, who brings the word to bear upon, upon our home and our, on our marriage, the, the priest, the, the worship leader of, of our home. 
uh, the king. The king would go out in those days. Remember, David would go out. I slain my Saul had slain his thousands. David had slain his ten thousand. I mean, he went out and just cut down the enemy. I mean, as the head of my home, I'm the guardian protector of our home. I stand as a with my sword and the shield, ready to to take on the, the onslaught of our culture and the enemy that wants to to kill, steal, and destroy. Yeah. Yeah. Just add one thing that kind of blends um, kind of Brad's biblical definition and some of the outplaying. You know, uh, Brad used the word covenant. You know, marriage is a covenant, biblical covenant. And the covenant, there's structure, right? There's there's a head or there's a a representative that sort of bears the weight of the covenant. So as, say, David was king over Israel, as David counted men, unbiblically, right, against God's will, there was a suffering of the people under David's care, if that makes sense. You see Eli's sons, if you know the story, you know, misused their role uh, under Eli the priest, and, and he was punished because of the wickedness of his children, right? So there's this both and. And so, so as, as John said, there is a headship that's a biblically defined as this head of covenant. So as the head of home goes, there's blessing and curse, if you will, within the home. And, and then that bears responsibility. So that person would be responsible for the spiritual development and the health and the sort of God-honoring abilities of the home, no matter what role or, or what tactical decisions you make on who's doing the money and who's going to parent and who's going to do all this, or not parent, but most of the discipline, there is an ultimate responsibility upon the head. And I love the column illustration on submission. You know, if you think about Greek culture, one of the things they were known for is architecture, and columns were a big deal. And so they were, they were strong and mighty, and they would hold up these amazing temples but they were also very dainty. They were very defined, very beautiful. People would come. They still come, right? You still go into uh, Greek areas and, and look at the columns that have stand forever. And so that's supposed to be a, an illustration of what submission really looks like in the end. It's this longstanding, this support, this beauty. Um, so anyway. yeah. And as one who submits to my husband, I want to say it's just for me it's been been joy it's been peace I don't want the weight of the responsibility of making huge decisions in the home Um, I grew up in a home where my mama ruled the roost and my daddy did what she said when she said and um, I've been so grateful that uh, John has led in such a way that it's, it's just it's been joy to submit and I don't want that weight of, it's a safe place to be, to be under the spiritual head. And ultimately, God is sovereign over the husband. He is submitting to God. And then what do, what, why would I not submit to that? And I trust his, his wisdom, which is a lot better than just being out there on my own, trying to figure out what's best. Yeah. Just a final word on that. Yeah. It's important to grasp because the second you say submission to culture, the the hairs on the back of the neck and sort of the blood within begins to boil. Um, and I just know this preaching wedding sermons, you'll have non-Christians come. Like, seriously, submission? Like, is this Puritan New England? Like, what, what's wrong with, you know? So, you can have, but just, it's because they think of submission as a tool to get one's way. And that's how the world tends to think about submission. Sadly, it often thinks about authority the same way because of the abuse of authority. But submission understood, as these folks have said, it's finally service of others. That's how Jesus understood his own role. And so when a husband grasps his responsibility as head, he recognizes he's fundamentally responsible for the welfare of others. 
which often means not getting his way in order to ensure that they are poured into and blessed and cared for and prosper, which is why when you grasp authority and responsibility and its biblical totality, so many people are reluctant to take the mantle of leadership. You know, and you'll even see this sometimes in the secular world where they understand, okay, my job is to ensure that these people prosper and I bear the weight and authority of that. And then they'll say, I'm not really sure I want to take that job. And, uh, and husband, that's just a good thing for husbands to think about, even as they think about marriage. It's not, it's not the tiebreaker, etc. And women don't have to check their minds and their opinions at the, at the altar when you think about submission. It's an important thing just to grab hold of, though. That is a, it's, it's worth meditating on, especially ladies, because I think it gets twisted today. Yeah. Good passages to meditate on would include, quickly. Yeah, I mean, hang out in Ephesians 5. Yep. Oh, man. Ephesians 5. Yeah, I agree. All right, so what do these roles look like in the home with everyday responsibilities? So specifically finances, di- disciplining your kids, uh, decisions, chores, planning, the yard, and so on and so forth. What does this look like practically, the roles? Yeah, just, the yard. <laughs> I think there's uh Hey, I'm, I kid you not. I mean, I, there are times when I see wives and they're out just like mowing. I mean, I've got a, one of my close friends whose mom mows. So, yeah, yeah there it is. You have, hey, if, you, if your wife had 11 children like mine, the mower is amazing because yeah. it's loud. and. That's right. That's right. So, yeah, my wife mows. Well, it's time off It's for an her. escape. Yeah. Generally speaking, I think you want to pursue those responsibilities that sort of reflect and enhance sort of biblical femininity and sort of the, sort of the male masculinity. But with that said, there often aren't hard and fast rules because oftentimes what we understand to be masculine or feminine are sometimes more culturally conditioned than they are biblically conditioned. So take, for example, like cooking. Well, in many parts of the world, cooking is not a female thing. Just go to a sushi restaurant in Japan. Like, they are, by culture, all male. Males prepare food. Um, I mean, Esau prepared food. So that's where you just have to stop and step back and say, okay, where am I borrowing the cultural assumptions on roles and responsibilities, and where am I thinking about it biblically? And so broadly speaking, if there's a funny noise in the house, I'm not going to look at my wife and say, hey, honey, will you go check that? You know, Genesis 2.15 says, I'm to work and to watch over, right? To sort of a protect and provide. And so, you know, if there's some, something going on fishy in the other side of the house, you know, I understand, like, I better get up and check that out. Um, but that doesn't mean that, you know, I have to do all the finances. You know, your wife could have been a Wall Street portfolio manager in some career, in some life. Well, you know what? Best to use that if you're a smart husband and use that and leverage that for the good of your home, so... I did buy Michelle a 20 gauge. Is that okay? <laughs> then I can sleep a little bit better. And that's a little less. Well, that's yeah. what happens when you live in West Fork, Arkansas. Hey, Courtney, no, she shot it before. So, okay. uh, yeah, I think it's very pragmatic, right? I think <clears throat> really great point to say, look, there are things that are distinctly masculine and feminine. Your point of the noise, you know, I mean, God actually chides his, the nation of Israel because the men are like women in skirts because they're unwilling to sort of fight, Right. So that's not really making fun of women at all. It's like, hey, men are the ones that are supposed to go out and grab a sword and die for, to protect their homes and protect their lands. So it's very pragmatic, I think. Um, I think that's, that's important um, you know, to remember. Great passage, maybe a way to wrap up, to reflect, is just Proverbs 31, I think. You see, I mean, here's a woman who's working hard. And, and you, you get the idea that she's running a home-based business. She's running a staff. There's this great, she has a great capacity for a lot of things. And so... 
Um, so be careful. Again, you might see stereotypically that she's supposed to be home and, and only changing diapers. Well, that's not what she's doing. And we see her as a noble woman that's worthy of, uh, of, of praise. Yeah, so. the husband praises her, doesn't resent that. That's right. But praises it because it's in the service of the home. Yeah. 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 Good. All right, Q&A right here. So what questions do you all have for our panelists? What questions do you all have for them? I've got plenty of questions, but whatever is on your mind. We, we were able to either awesome or we You're answering like everything. No questions. No, there are questions out there. I'm confident. Okay. So this means, so what Brad loves to do is he just wants to make it super awkward. So we're all just going to sit. Okay. Here we go. Madeline. Madeline. All right. The waters will break. Okay. And so probably it would be good to restate the question as well. So. Yeah, so advice for those who haven't been taught this kind of model of marriage. Advice for you or how you can help your parents understand? Well, just how do I, like, explain to them, like, this or, like, if I don't agree with what they're saying? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> just, I think one thing that will help you is, uh, is if, you get, if you get to know a couple well, that you look at their lives and it won't be perfect. And the better you get to know them, the less perfect it will become. But if you see, okay, I, I recognize things here that are godly, that are honorable, that I'd like to try and model in my own life and marriage if God would grant that one day, uh, then get to know them and talk through these things with them. Because its principles are great, and you need the principles, but oftentimes it's how those things are fleshed out that is what sort of gives the sort of the meaning and the substance to it. And so having that kind of a relationship is going to help you in conversations with others. And then it's good to recognize if your parents are Christians, well, then you can lean on Scripture. And you can say, well, I'm just, this is what I understand from, from creation in Genesis 2, you know, from Ephesians 5, you know, from other texts. If they're not believers, well, then I think it's best to keep conversations on the gospel as much as you can and not let your understanding of roles within a home be a stumbling block to the gospel. Doesn't mean you ignore the, you ignore the, the questions and conversations, but you try to push them back toward the way Christ has loved his church, the way that's to be modeled in marriage. Yeah, I thought to, you don't need to feel the pressure to convert their thinking. Um, you know, certainly it's not your biblical role, and yet we're encouraged, we want to always be in that, that teaching mode. So as you're establishing your home, you certainly have to do that in a way that honors the Lord. And as you kind of go from one covenantal home to establish another one, you need that blessing of your parents. But that can look very different. Sometimes parents just abdicate. It's like, oh, whatever. I mean, if you want to do this Christian thing and marry this Christian guy, go for it. Well, in a sense, that's them releasing and saying, hey, go. Not, not that you always have to have that, but that's certainly more, as close as we can get to a blessing, send out is the best. And sometimes that's just a whatever, you know. But then also... Um, um, as, you're, as you're moving forward, make sure that you are, as Brad said, with other couples, but in the word, and, and as opportunity comes, you can model that. You know, it may be, you may be in your 25th anniversary before your parents go, you know, I wish we had done our marriage that way. And, and that's just that patient long run. But, but make sure that transition honors them, 
and make sure that you're unwilling to sort of um, do it wrongly just to keep it, the tension down uh, with your parents. Psalm 78, great passage about multi-faithful, generational faithfulness, and it talks about sort of the chaos that goes from one generation drawing a line in the sand and saying, as for me and my house, we're going this way, and as parents, we can all attest, you have to absorb the blows of, of your parents doing it wrong, as Angela talked about her mom. I mean, we absorb that, protect our children so that we can model something different. So we kind of live on both sides. Does that make sense? So our, our children aren't necessarily being overly influenced uh, in ways that we don't want. So is that helpful? So if that yeah. made more sense, I can give them examples. Yeah. Like maybe I should watch the dating one from last week because I didn't come. So that would probably be better. Gotcha. Katrina? Um, what might be some healthy ways that we can kind of like be faithful where we are as college students, praying for, preparing for, you know, God willing, like marriage? Ways as a college student to prepare for marriage. The first thing I would say, especially as a female, is just to prepare for a life of godliness, period. Mm -hmm. Don't prepare for marriage, per se, because that is never guaranteed. And I talked, I have three little girls at home, you know, and they watch us, and I know that they would desire to be married, but that isn't the focal point of my conversations with them as young women. Mm -hmm. We talk a lot about just cultivating a quiet and gentle spirit with their strength. So that doesn't mean that they're not strong women. I have very strong women. They have a very strong mother. I mean, it just, it's part of it. And that's, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I think you can see some of that in the submission conversation we were having earlier. That doesn't mean that you're a mousy and reserved and any of those things. It does know when to shut your mouth. That's what it teaches you. It teaches you that you're not always right and those kind of things. Um, but as far as preparing, it's to cultivate a love for God's word and a love for his people and a love for the local church and to be knit and involved. And so talking about your parents and those kind of things. What Brad was saying, which I thought was your question initially, but that is get involved in that uh, uh, multi-generational stuff like Haley was talking about at the retreat. It is imperative that you're in the lives of people that are not your age absolutely imperative as a college student. You need to be involved with the younger generation and pouring in from what God has taught you and then moving forward and seeing. I mean, Brad and I still do that. Some of my closest friends here at UBC are in their 60s and 70s, and I'm so, so thankful for them. It's fascinating to sit at dinner with them and just let my children hear from them and their faithfulness. It is one of the best gifts that I can give my kids, too. And to see marriage, not 20, 25, or 27 years in, but like 50 years in. It's a whole different game at that point. You know, loving somebody when they're trying to help each other in to sit down in a chair. It's a blessing to be able to learn from those saints that have gone before. So. Yeah, and then learn contentment now. I think one of the, you know, Paul reminds us that godliness with contentment is great gain. And sometimes we feel maybe a lack or a, a, a yearning for marriage, and we assume marriage will sort of satisfy that. But the reality is some of the, the loneliest and most unhappy people I know are married people uh, because your spouse will crush you like no one else ever will. And that's just the hard, true reality. doesn't mean it's not glorious. It is. But that's also, it, it happens. And so if you can learn contentment in your singleness, then that will assist you in marriage. Absolutely. And just develop healthy relationships with the opposite sex. 
So I don't want to assume because all the women are sitting, well, not all of them, but many of the women are sitting right here in the front row that that means you guys don't communicate like men and women together in groups. But just, yeah, brothers and sisters, but be like healthy brothers and sisters in Christ. So don't be weird dudes who sit in the back and only talk to women when you want to ask them out on a date. Right? Just have normal conversations. Don't assume woman that because a man comes and talks to you, he's interested in you, like romantically or relationally. So just learn to have those kind of relationships, and that will help assist you, not just in marriage. I mean, it's just going to assist you in life. April 8th, singleness and biblical friendship. There it is. Little plug for a little later on. Um, okay, so looking back, what do you wish you knew before you got married? And uh, how are some of those expectations reoriented when you got married? What do you wish you knew? How were those expectations reoriented when you got married? I'll so give a brief, fun. but biblical roles. I mean, we just... You know, I, we were doing youth ministry, teaching, knew the word, whatever, but had never really thought, the yeah, Bible actually defines my role, her role, and we were about, I don't know, 10 years plus into marriage, and to actually start reading the scripture, looking for wisdom for marriage, and it was a radical transformation for us. We, we've always had a great marriage. We would have told you at 10 years in, we would put our marriage up, and, and you know, like, man, I mean, I don't want to model anybody else's marriage. This is great. We're loving life, but... But it, it was a radical, it was a radical shift for us. So just understanding what does it really mean, biblical roles. Don't assume you know, and um, maybe so that that was transformational for us. Yeah. Angela, we had never heard the phrase love languages prior to marriage, and probably ten years into marriage, and little did we know that our love languages were the exact opposite. Um, <laughs> and so my love language is, is verbal encouragement. And I, that's probably number five on John's. And, uh, <laughs> and so if he didn't say, I love you, I mean, I, we spent the first two to three years of our marriage, me telling him, I don't feel like you love me because he wasn't saying, I mean, he did say, I love you, but he didn't say it as often or as romantically as I wanted him to say it. <laughs> and uh, his love language is just, just being near physical touch and closeness and and I'm up busy I'm doing things I rarely sit for more than five minutes at a time and so he felt unloved because I wasn't next to him I wasn't in his world so once we identified that it was just like a major light bulb went off and we we decided to try to learn each other's language he he worked on being more verbally encouraging, speaking words to me. Um, an example would be if I asked him to do something, he, he's very analytical and he'll think through it and give a logical answer, but I just wanted him to respond with a very quick, oh, sure, honey, which meant not necessarily that he would do it, but just that he was willing to do it, that his heart was, was for me. Oh, of course, darling. And then, you know. It's the little things. It's the little it's things. It's the little things. Yeah. What what this exposes is, I mean, our just utter selfishness. Um, I mean, I mean, I, I knew I was a sinner going into marriage, but to see that, I mean, I am a selfish sinner. I don't think I really grasped that until I got married. And then it's then it's it's this stuff. It's really not about love languages. So it is about it, but what it is, it's I'm not. I'm so selfish. I'm not wanting to serve her in the way that really speaks into her heart and vice versa. I want her to come to my terms. I want, it's kind of like what you were saying earlier. We come into our marriages or we come into relationships with even subconsciously, hey, I get this from this relationship rather than how can I bless? How can I serve? How can I 
just treasure this this incredible gift and and pour into into her life and vice versa. Yeah. Great. Yeah, I think we even look for a spouse shopping, right? That's just a bad way to start. You know, I mean, uh, it's not about the other person. It's not about the will of God. It's not about the purposes of why he would even bring somebody in our life. We haven't spent our lives just dying to self continuously in all of our relationships. You know, our ministry I work for light bears, and so we have housing, right? And so you put this, some, several of you guys have been a part of it, but you get four guys or four girls in an apartment, you, all of a sudden we want community. We just don't really want it to cost us anything, right? So that's how we live our lives when we get into marriage, and we just assume the other person is going to lay their life down for us, and it's going to fulfill us. Well, it, it's, yeah. you know. So we, we start off with the path of it's all about me. I'm shopping. This is what I want. I don't want to give up. I've never been modeled. No one's doing that to me. Then yeah. we're pretty self-justified in all of our feelings that kind of twist it. So. so I think one one danger perhaps for younger generations is because sort of authority is so regularly sort of distrusted uh, and then that will, you're carried into marriage. Uh, and particularly if you didn't grow up in a godly Christian marriage or you didn't have godly Christian parents, I didn't. I grew up in a secular world, secular parents. Um, so I never had any understanding of sort of roles and responsibilities. Therefore, young men particularly can often sort of eschew the sort of autocratic behavior they associate with headship and authority. And what's left is a kind of puny passivity. And that was our early relationship. I thought the best way I respect Erin is to let her do what she wants. And when she was getting promotions at work, you know, she'd say, what do you think? And I'd say, well, what do you want? Well, I'm, but I'm asking you, like, what do you think is best for the marriage? Yeah, what do you want to do? Like, that's what's best for the marriage. She wanted me to lead, and I wanted temporary peace. And I traded sort of some lasting division early on in the marriage for that temporary peace. And that's a bad trade-off. So you'll ha- that's a good thing we had to work through and think through. Yeah. Uh, what are some things that cause tension in marriage, and how do you go about resolving conflict? I mean, it's everything that you can think of. Money, sex, kids, sleep, work, anything can cause division. Why? Because of what we were talking about before. I think there's a sense in which we want to serve ourselves. We want more sleep. And our spouse has a different idea. So one wants to go to bed She's early and get up early. at all. <laughs> <laughs> You've one, heard other people deal with Yeah, that. I've heard that there's this thing where one wants to go we to do. bed we early. One is a night owl. <laughs> um, yeah, but those things can, any of it can cause friction because what it is is you're just putting up all these little idols of things that you want to, ser- want to serve you to help make your life better, right? And so you just line them all up. And so if there was anything I wish I knew before I got into marriage, camping on that last question, it was just that to search my heart to know a little bit better about what I was putting up on that, that shelf. You know, what are my, what are my things that are going to cause me to react when I don't get to go to bed when I want, or the baby is crying. When you're like, the first baby is one thing. When you get down to, well, you could attest to this, the third or the fourth baby, <laughs> and they cry in the middle of the night, and you're like, I don't hear it. No, I don't hear it. I'm sure that they hear it. I'm sure they're going to get up and serve me that way. <laughs> Those kind of things. After a while, and there's fatigue and novelty of marriage wears off, it's tough to get up and to serve, especially if you feel like you're the only one doing it, if you start looking at it like that. So. Yeah, I would say, too, just prepping. If you're, I don't know, maybe your world revolves around you now, when you get up, 
Are you serving anybody? Are you doing anything that's hard? Are you disciplined in the word? Are you disciplined in the way you eat, your exercise? Anything at all that takes an extra amount of work where it's not just sort of passively or selfishly going throughout your day, you're already starting on the wrong foot as you get into marriage. Marriage won't fix that. It'll just highlight it, right? And other people will now begin to suffer because of that sort of sin pattern in your life or that sort of flippant casting off this life that the Lord's blessed us with. So that's a challenge to all of us. Um, you know, even, you know, I talk to guys that struggle or, you know, I don't talk a lot with girls about these kind of things, but guys that pornography or, or you know, lust or whatever, they think marriage fixes that kind of stuff. Well, it doesn't. It doesn't fix it at all. And so those are things that if you get in a, I, this sort of pattern now of crucifying your flesh and being disciplined in life, it certainly will, will radically change. I think for us, we learned a term... Uh, there's an author named Sheldon Vanaken, who's a friend of C.S. Lewis's, a book called um, Severe, Mercy. Severe Mercy. And they talk about this thing called creeping separateness. And we've found that to be really critical in our sort of hitting conflict before it comes. It is, you know, in any relationship, when something small is blown up, it's really not about what the thing is. It's about a history. It's about an ongoing. And for us, we recognize that we both can work very independently and like it. So we just sort of creep apart over days of what Aaron is talking about. And so just getting so sensitive to that to where you're like, you know what, we need to just wash dishes together or, you know, whatever it will be and just not allowing ourselves to get independent. Um, and that's where we will default, yeah. uh, where we just kind of coexist in that way. Well, that's anyway. good. Angela? I would say a good preparation for marriage would be finding that balance between being being disciplined on one side but being flexible on the other Dis yeah. disciplined in your but being willing it, and you can practice that with your friends with your roommates um, with people in the body um, putting their needs first um, you know maybe I'm disciplined to get up and run at this time every day but my friend needs me right now and so every time you practice um, being flexible and being available for when God wants you to serve someone, um, but having both sides of the coin, disciplined and flexible. Yeah, life is a bunch of interruption. It just is. And so starting to embrace that, like Angela's saying, that's a brilliant uh, practice right now. Um, and to recognize that each interruption is a divine appointment from the Lord. Like there's a purpose for the interruption. It's not just to teach you self-control. It could be that, but it could be doing so much more than that in your heart spiritually. I think, too, lifestyle of conf repentance and confession and forgiveness, granting forgiveness, doing that now. I mean, that's not something you just do when you came to faith. I mean, that is, that's the Christian life. Because we're selfish, because we're sinners, because we're in the process of being sanctified, we screw up. And when you're in a relationship, it, it comes to the forefront. And so, I mean, practice that because, I mean, when... When I hurt my wife or when there's distance, when I've done something, or maybe when I've been passive, I mean, I need to, I need to be able to come to her and, and, and say the words, honey, I have, I've messed up. I've hurt you, and I've done some things that really a sin before God and sin unto you. Will, will you forgive me? And then for her to grant that, I mean, that's just, there's, I mean, God uses it. That's a gospel thing. And sometimes we don't do that. We just don't do that in our, we do it in our quiet times if we feel like we've done something egregious. But it's not that everyday, ongoing, sanctifying repentance, faith, repentance and faith, repentance, confession, and granting, um, releasing a person from there. Because we've done it as well. I mean, just see what Christ has done for us 
and then let that bear out in your life now and in, in your relationships. Yeah. A good text thing about James 4, because there, you know, James says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? And he says, it's actually, the issue is not the other person. He says, it's you. You desire and you do not have. So often fights, we think we're owed or deserve something, and we don't get it, and we get angry. Then that's where the gospel sort of upends that understanding. And in every fight or quarrel, you have sinned. And if you can't see it, if you're not able to confess that, then you're never going to make any progress. Yeah, that's helpful. In what ways has membership in a local church helped your marriage, and what should be the church's role in your marriage? So in what ways has church membership or membership in a local church helped your marriage, and what should be the church's role in your marriage? I mean, uh, role-wise, certainly teaching. I mean, I should understand marriage um, infinitely better because of the, the gift of elders in the church and godly women that teach, you know. So, so that's, that's huge. Where else are you going to go? Uh, be careful what you read. Um, be careful who you listen to. Um, if you're watching movies and, and your life is, is infiltrated with bad marriages and terrible relationships and people poking fun at marriage and all these things, then you're, you're um, warring against the very thing God may put in your life, which is marriage. And so the church is that counter-narrative to culture that gives the only truth from the scripture of what marriage really is and isn't. And so that, I mean, to me, that's got to be the top three, you know what I mean, right there. And then certainly secondarily is being in covenant relationship with people who struggle and people who succeed in marriage, um, that's, been, that's been great. So being an elder, having to counsel others and go, God, I'm not that much different or I'm, I'm worse or, you know. Uh, so, and being able to teach marriage obviously reflects back on are we living marriage the way we're supposed to, but then also having other people do that for us. So both the real practical, the biblical teaching and understanding, but then also fleshing that out in life and seeing you know, how that works out practically. So, and accountability would be third. That's the church discipline piece. That in my worst, ugliest, darkest moment in temptation, I've got a church body that will absolutely cream me if something were to happen, if I do something stupid. And, yeah. uh, and I think that's... And hug me. And hug me, yeah, that. <laughs> and cream you. Yeah, 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 and shit. I think, in two, marriage, because it's a gospel, it's a gospel image, it, then it becomes a church issue. It's, it's not a private thing. So our, it's not that we bring all of our dirty laundry out to the church, but we live in community because marriage is a gospel, is a gospel thing. It's never private. We, we struggle with this even as elders. We see this marriages are struggling, and they keep it to themselves. And, and then the, the maybe at the last minute they come when they're hanging by a thread, hey, maybe we'll, can, you, can you help us? And it's like, no, we, you're part of a church. <laughs> the, this body, we're to, to live out in community, living at one another's together, bearing with one another, caring for another, confessing our sins to one another. And we do that. We, we, we're, we're called to do that in our, with our marriages. Yeah. Yeah. I think one practical area, too, it helps, it helps put your joys and your struggles in perspective. Every marriage, you're going to wake up or go to bed, and it might be on the honeymoon, right, and say, how in the world am I supposed to make it through with this person? And that's going to happen in every marriage. And because of that, as you get to talk to other married couples and bring them into your life, you're going to stop and take a deep breath and say, so it's not just us. Like, we're not the only people that deal with this or deal with that. 
Um, and that's hugely reassuring. And then those folks can build wisdom and perspective, and they can just put their arm around you and say, it's going to be okay, right? It's going to be just fine. Hang in there. Keep fighting by the means of grace, involving others in. And that's, we found that really helpful. Because I think I assumed that with our, so literally, I think, what month was it? The, well, the, okay, I know, the, the honeymoon. honeymoon. Yeah, the All honeymoon right. was a little rough. There was a great moment where Aaron stood up, threw the napkin on the table, stormed out. And, like, everyone's staring at me. And we were at one of these, I made, yeah, I had a good job at the time. We were in Bora Bora. Yeah, I don't need to get it. All these, these older couples were looking at us. And most of the looks of the dudes were like, you're going to be okay. But, of course, I'm thinking, like, marriage is over. It's a honeymoon, and she's already storming off. But uh, at any rate. Hey, we had a couple friend of ours who'd been married probably for, like, 20 years when we were in our early years of marriage and in early in ministry. And I remember her looking at me and saying, yeah, I remember those first that first year of marriage to so and so, and I remember saying to him, "Either you're going to die, or I'm going to die, because surely God did not mean for this to be a lifetime." <laughs> and they had been married for 20 years, and they worked through it. But it was the idea that it was so bad when they first got married, but they were committed to each other, and now they love each other deeply. But it was really freeing. I know it. I know it sounds terrible. Trust me, I know it sounds terrible. <laughs> But, yeah, no, 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 but the idea is that it's t- till death do you part, right? So they were committed to each other. But I do think, I know it sounds awful, I know. But I do think there's a sense in which it can feel that bad at times. And I say that because I think it's important you hear it because there are marriages that get that bad sometimes. Well, yeah, but I, I think, yeah. And I mean, I think what you're saying is yeah. that every marriage is that bad. I don't. You get to the point where like, how are we going to get through it? Well, there's no doubt. I think you, we certainly have been at the point where you're like, man, this is hard. You know, I can't do this independently. You know, you get that. But, you know. I think what you need to understand is that there is freedom when you hear people being confessional and yes. forgiving. And that was what I mean by the story. So it may be shocking to you, but for me, it was so freeing because I knew they loved each other, yeah. and I knew that God was gracious to them, and they made it. And they were still making it, and they were thriving, not just making it. I mean, that's the other thing. It's not just making it. It's thriving. And it, they were a gospel witness to us in our young marriage because I was really struggling. We did have some really hard years. I know some people, it's bliss from the beginning, and then they hit it later. Ours was at the beginning, and then again at 10 years. Years. I mean, we bottomed. We drug along the bottom for a long time. So I, when people come and talk about hard things in their marriage, I look at them like, okay. I mean, I am not shocked. I am not surprised. I expect it because we are sinners married to sinners, and we are fools if we think otherwise. And so that's the only reason for telling the story. So. Yes, good morning. All right, so wanting to open up questions from you all. Um, so you talk about like, serving each other. What does self-care look like in marriage? Yeah. Self-care in marriage. I don't think I've ever gotten that question. That's a great question. I think this is so important, right? Yeah. Well, um, yeah, it's great timing. So 2017 was a pretty hard year for me. I've had a lot of sort of health downs and, uh, and I'm a like go and take on, yes, I'll take care of that, I'll do this kind of thing. And so the Lord certainly humbled me in that. I recognized my own selfishness in uh, my identity being built up too much in service and other things. And so it's been a good but a hard journey. So my wife, who's a mother like a, of a large family and very busy, uh, 
has had to take some, some extra care. So she basically inherited another child this last year that she had to care for. Um, and so I recognized in that, number one, she's amazing. Um, and I recognize by her caring for me so intimately and making sure that I was going to be okay with what I'm eating and my stress level and you know, all kinds of stuff and just giving me some great resources that I needed to do a better job making sure she's caring for herself the same. So in, in a sense, her self-sacrifice woke me up to say, I need to actually do a much better job helping her self-care, right? And so, um, so that's it. Part of it is if you understand the um, gravity of what the Lord has put before you, the tasks and the, the beauty of the marriage and this battle we're talking about of just constantly being uh, in front of your flesh, um, then we'll take that more seriously. So we'll get better sleep because our spouse needs us to be more rested. Our kids need us. My wife does not need me to wake up and not be willing to grab a little girl that, you know, my little two-year-old that, you know, while she's trying to get this food on the table, you know, she doesn't need me to wake up just in time to run off to work, right? Uh, or whatever it would be. And, and, and so you get better rest. You, you take better care of yourself. You're in the word more because what you realize, I think the the more um, that I'm in the role of a husband and a father, I, n- I realize I know less and less all the time that I need this word <laughs> continuously, right? Uh, and so, so you just you recognize that um, part of your self-sacrifice is taking care of yourself. But there's a thin line where that can become very selfish. So you might like to run. You might like to work out. You might like to, you may have a hobby. You may play the guitar. You may like to hike. You may like to fish. Well, I'm telling you, those things will die off one at a time as you serve your family. You don't have to kill them all, but you can't be so enamored with them that they, um, they take up some very precious resources. So self-care looks differently than you might think now as phases of life come. You guys can speak to that, but I, I have a pair of ping golf clubs that I haven't filled out in about 10 years. You know what I mean? I know. I used to a lot. No idea. Things, I know, see? Things you so, learn. Anything you would add to so, that, Brad? Well, I think self-care, the most critical thing is just spiritually in your own life. I mean, if you're, a, if you're a husband and called to spiritually lead a family, you can't impart what you yourself don't possess. So you've got to prioritize that, which may mean you're up before everyone else to make sure it happens. And then it is good to recognize what is sort of what energizes, refreshes, restores, and kind of resets, as opposed to what is an escape. And I think that's one thing we've tried to work through. So I've learned, like for my wife, she can sort of reset with a good devotion in the morning and her morning run. And that serves her exceedingly well. That's not her escaping the home. That's her, like, getting refueled so that she's able to serve in the home for the remainder of the day. And for me, Aaron will often be like, hey, you need to go out and ride your motorcycle, which I love to do. I've also learned, though, that can be a bit of an escape. You know, if I don't really want to deal with stuff, I'm like, I'm going to get on a bike, I'm going to pull that throttle back, and I'm just going to get lost in all of that. And a couple hours later, and I haven't served anyone but myself, and it really hasn't refreshed or restored me in any meaningful way, um, whereas some other activities can. And it's going to be different for everyone. You just got to learn and know that and be willing. It will be, yeah. And seasons will provide different opportunities. So I'm able to do things now I couldn't do when our kids were small. But I've given up something. We used to have our evenings. Now we've got teenagers. That's when they want to talk. We don't have our evenings anymore. So. No offense, Sarah Beth. Any other, uh, any other questions from you all? Lindsay? Okay, so this is sort of a two-part question. So the first one being, can you talk more about um, making big decisions in the 
still from biblical roles such as, like, do you take that job promotion or what have you? And the second part being, earlier we talked about, like, sinfulness. Can you talk about things we, quote, unquote, deserve in this life? So, like, what biblically do we as humans deserve? Judgment. <laughs> One of the things that you see in Ephesians 5, this key, and the second question, because I think we did this pretty fast, respect, you know, it says wife, respect your husband, husbands love your wife, right? I mean, that, that's a sort of God-given, deserved, and we're programmed for it. So it, it, you talk about what's fulfilling in marriage. It isn't this, you know, a hundred things on a list and whatever, but we do, um, we do require men, uh, our wives, to respect us in a way that causes us to continue to press forward to honor the Lord and do hard things, sacrificial things for the glory of Christ. But one thing that gives me particular like zeal to do it is when I know my wife sees me and says, I, just, I love that you're doing that. I respect you in that role. And then for her, when, when I'm loving her unconditionally, there's something in her that says, I, look, I'll do anything, everything the Lord calls me to do because I know, as Angela was saying, I know you're with me. I know you're there. And those are radical things. You think about Paul's audience, it would have been, you know, this idea of submission. Everybody in the culture at that point would have been, of course, we're to submit. Oh, love your wife? Wait, that's radical. You see, cultures just have shifted, but the Bible is the same, right? So it was actually loving your wife that was radical then, where today it's the submission piece. But so I think, what do you sort of deserve in that sense? Um, you should expect that your husband um, to be, you should see that modeling him loving you as Christ loves the church, and you, he should see you respecting his walk and respecting sort of that role that's good. going. And if that's not right in marriage, that's, it yeah. crumbles. Angela? And that totally feeds into the, your first question. Wait, I lost you. There you are. Um, we've always made decisions together, but if there's, if we've, we've talked through, we share my thoughts on it, his thoughts on it, normally we, we sort of come to the same conclusion, but if we didn't, ultimately, if it just came down to where that we were just in, in, I thought we should do this and he thought we should do that, I would submit and say, and I would trust that, I mean, he was uh, responsible before the Lord for this decision, and I would come under, but he has thoroughly listened to my thoughts about it. We've prayed about it together. We've talked about it together. We've submitted to one another in it, but if we're at an impasse, I mean, I'm going to go with what my what he thinks is best. And what's beautiful, sometimes sometimes we find out it could have been maybe a diff- maybe it wasn't the right. Maybe her thought was... Sometimes. Sometimes yeah. it does, or maybe a lot of times. But here's what here's what here's the beauty of it. Here's the beauty of it. She'll I mean she doesn't hold that back. She didn't come back to me, man. See I was right. See that's selfishness. She's like she'll come back and man, I, we, we, you made the right decision, and we'll we'll see what how God's going to work this out. Sometimes God will even use a wrong decision. Um, there was an example I heard in a conference one time where um, the woman wanted her husband to oh I can't remember the example good enough but he she did not know he was involved in an affair and he was losing his business and she stepped in and intervened and made everything where he wouldn't actually lose his business God was orchestrating all of that to bring him out of that situation and to restore their marriage but because she intervened and took matters into her own hands and saved the business as a result I'm not conveying it well, but 
I mean, they lost their marriage. So sometimes you can just trust. It may, it may be a mistake that the husband makes, but sometimes God's going to use that to bring up, to protect him in the end. Yeah. All right. So uh, just final kind of question right here. How would you counsel those longing to be married but are still single? Quick thing to keep in mind. Uh, there... These marriages, as I understand it, don't exist in heaven. We're all married one day to our bride. And so any earthly marriage is merely preparation. It's not the destination. And we have to keep that in mind as we think about our marriages in this life. They're not ultimate. They're merely preparatory. In the same way, so, we'd, so to the single person struggling with singleness, you will be married one day to the person who will love you best and care for you best. And you will not regret for a moment over the course of the next billions upon billions of years that you were not married in this life and vice versa. So that, that preparatory aspect as opposed to the destination, in my mind, that's a critical one. Yeah, just two quick thoughts. One, Brad used earlier, godliness with contentment is great gain. Right, I mean, I think that's a great verse for all of us. But it's, you know, certainly if you long for something you don't have, than that's supposed to. And the second thing is the Bible says marriage is a gift, right? And singleness is a gift. And we like to qualify, qualify which is a better gift. And that's really not fair to the Lord. Because so. what God's interested in is not our happiness. He's interested in, you know, you've heard this. He, he wants us to be holy. Marriage can be an instrument of holiness, but so can singleness. Stripping away selfishness, I mean, dying to the flesh. That's what he wants. That's what you can pursue now. And in relationship, dating relationship, that's what it's about. It's about holiness. And in marriage, because you're right, this goes away. And then it's before him, being purified and whole with Christ. Yeah. All right.